Please open your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 45. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 24, 45 through uh, Matthew 25, verse 13. I don't know how you feel about surprises. Uh, personally, I'm not a big fan. Uh, my, my wife found this out the hard way a few years back uh, when she decided to surprise me for my 30th birthday. Um, you probably already gathered that I'm a, a bit of a, I can be a bit reserved. Um, I'm not a, a hugger, for example. I'm not a toucher. Uh, I enjoy time with friends, but I still prefer to maintain a healthy amount of personal space in the relationship. The right amount of distance is, in my mind, a healthy thing. Well, I was sitting at my computer in my pajamas on a Sunday, uh, California Saturday, when quite unexpectedly, there was a knock at the door. And before I knew it, there were a handful of friends in their pajamas, uh, pouring in to celebrate my birthday with me in my pajamas. And suffice to say, I was not amused. And I was not amused, most especially given the fact that I was wearing a pair of PJs with a rather immodest hole in them, because after all, who would possibly drop by to see me at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning? No, I'm not a huge fan of surprises. <laughs> I can appreciate the sentiment. I realized, for instance, that my wife was doing a nice thing for me when she invited my friends over for my birthday. She put a lot of effort in to plan something special for me. I know that. I can be thankful for that. But all the same, I prefer not to be surprised. I don't know if you have any recurring dreams. Uh, the only one that I tend to have starts with me back in college. I've signed up uh, for some sort of class. The only problem is that somehow I've forgotten about the class. I show up for the first couple of weeks, but after that I just get so busy it completely slips my mind. About two weeks before the end of the semester, I suddenly remember there's this class that I'm supposed to be attending, and now I have to show up for the final without any preparation. That is the stuff of nightmares for me. To be completely surprised by an important test or an immovable deadline. Best I can tell, this is why I don't like surprises. Again, I can appreciate the hard work that goes into a well-intentioned surprise, but at the end of the day, I just don't like being unprepared. I like order. I feel comfortable when things are controlled and expected. I find security in being able to predict what's in front of me so I know how to respond. Surprises, by definition, are unexpected. You can't really prepare for them. In fact, when they're planned, that's the whole point. It's to catch you unprepared. So while a lot of people think surprises are fun, to me they're nothing more than chaos. I wouldn't go so far as to call them scary, but they're definitely unnerving. Perhaps you share my attitude towards surprises. Perhaps not. But if you do, I have some rather startling news for you. When Jesus comes to gather his people, it will be a complete surprise. We saw this last week in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. At the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. They responded to his prediction of the temple's destruction by asking first, when will these things be? We've already seen that's a question about the entirety of the period of turmoil commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. The disciples want to know when the suffering will begin. And then second, they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's one question about two events which the disciples believe to be united. The Scripture indicates that the Messiah will end the age when He comes to destroy the Antichrist, the disciples can perceive that there's some gap between the Messiah's arrival and His coming in judgment. And so what they want to know is, how will, how will we know when you're about to come back? And there's probably a few different motives driving this question, but I think it's probably fair to say that they want to be prepared. They're asking the professor for the exam date because they don't want to be surprised by a pop quiz. You know how that works, right? The teacher hands out the syllabus at the beginning of the semester, and what's the first thing you do? You look for those exam dates. You look for those major deadlines. Then you scribble them down in your planner or something like that. Why? It's because you don't want to walk into class one day and without warning hear the teacher say, okay, class, go ahead and clear everything off your desks. All you need is a number two pencil and a blank sheet of paper. Not only that, but knowing the exam date keeps you from studying prematurely. Am I right? You watch that date like a hawk because if the test isn't until a month from now, 
well then you can figure that you probably have at least three weeks before you really need to start studying for the exam. At least that's what you do if you're a procrastinator like me. You put off the work until the last possible moment, not a moment sooner. That's just an efficient way of using your time, right? Well, from the way Jesus handles this question, this seems to be the disciples' thinking too. They want to know the exam date. The only problem is that they think the the final exam is at the very end. When Jesus comes back to judge the earth, what they don't understand is that there's a kind of exam that precedes that one. And if you pass that exam, then you don't have to be there for the final. Your semester ends early. You've passed. That's what Jesus explains in verses 40 to 41. He says, Then, or at that time, which we saw as a reference to the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. He says, At that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. He says, Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And the word for taken is the word paralambano, which means something like to take along or to receive. The word for left is ephemi, which approximates to leave or in, a, in the sense of to abandon. The idea is one group is received up to God while God abandons the other and allows them to go their way into destruction. This seems to be a reference to the rapture. It's not a a reference to Jesus coming at the end of the age because Jesus has said that that coming will occur with many signs that will forewarn of that event. He even goes so far as to compare the signs preceding that event to the leaves of the fig tree that it puts out just before summer arrives. Here, though, Jesus says that there will be no warning. He even compares it to the days of Noah when people were going about their normal business right up until the floodwaters hit because they had no idea what was about to take place. Jesus compares the day of the Lord to that And then he says that this gathering event will occur in the exact same way. The one will be taken and the one left. They're going to be going about business as usual until the moment they're separated. It won't be that way at the very end. There's going to be such turmoil on the earth by the end, and Jesus' coming will come with such apparent splendor that Jesus says that people will actually be calling out to the rocks to fall on them in advance of his arrival. There's nothing mysterious about that arrival. It's very plain. So again, verses 40 to 41 seem to be a reference to the rapture. In other words, the disciples want to know about the timing of the end because they want to be prepared for its arrival. What Jesus explains is that if the question is about his final return, then yes, there are many signs that foretell of that moment. And he explains those signs earlier in Matthew 24. But if the question question is motivated by a desire to be prepared then they have to understand that there is this other event, which we know as the rapture, which will occur before the end. In that event, Jesus is going to return to collect his people so that they can be delivered from the final outpouring of God's wrath. So if the disciples want to know how to be prepared, then they need to be prepared for that, not Jesus' return and judgment at the end. And what Jesus essentially tells them is that in regards to the date of that exam, No one knows. No one knows when it will occur. In fact, not even Jesus knows. Jesus says that it will simply occur at that time, somewhere with reference to the day of the Lord. And since the day of the Lord will be totally unexpected, and since the rapture will take place somewhere in that event, but without any specific point of reference in the sequence, it too will be unexpected. This means that the disciples can't entirely prepare for that event, at least not in the way that they're hoping for. There's no date for them to put down on the calendar to tell them when to start studying. It can happen at any time. At any point during the semester, the disciple might walk into class and hear the teacher say, please clear your desk and get out a sheet of paper and a number two pencil. It's time for your exam. Could be week two or three or four. Or it could be week ten or twelve. There's just no way of knowing. Now, last week I said that this should give us hope. That's one way to apply this truth, to see it as a reason to have hope each and every day. After all, what this passage means is that the hope of our redemption, the hope of our redemption might be fulfilled at any moment. At any moment, our very best friend might return for us. 
The one who laid down his life for our sins. The one who loves us more than anyone else has ever loved us. Who is glorious in his majesty and perfect in his wisdom and power. At any moment he may come to bring us to himself so that we might enjoy his friendship and glory forever and ever. At any moment the sin that so entangles us and prevents us from fully relishing his glory might be destroyed. No longer will we have to keep turning back to idols for our joy or protection. No longer will we fear man. No longer will we worry about the future. No longer will we struggle to find hope in our present trials. All the wrong thoughts and idolatrous desires of our hearts will be obliterated in an instant at the return of Christ. That could happen at any moment. At any moment, you might be resurrected and physically restored to a perfect state. So no more frailty, or injury, or handicap. No more disease. No more death. Just perfect physical health. That can happen in an instant. You may not have to wait until tomorrow, or or the day after that. It can happen today. Every day our redemption is drawing unrelentingly nearer and nearer. This means that every day we have something to look forward to. There may be temporary setbacks or or trials in this life. And we can receive them all with the knowledge that in a very short amount of time, they're going to give way to unspeakable joy. The pains here are but temporary. They don't last long. And so there's a sense in which every day is a good day for us. Because every day we draw nearer to our reward. The doctrine of the imminent rapture gives us hope that it might even come sooner than we think. Our liberation may be today. This is one way to apply the rapture's imminence. However, here in verses 45 through chapter 25, verse 13, Jesus adopts a completely different tack. He has a very different application of the rapture in mind. So let's go ahead now and see what he has to say. Matthew 24, 45 through 25, verse 13. Jesus applies the rapture in this way. He says, Who then is faithful, is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him to pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet their bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In this passage, Jesus adopts two basic applications to the doctrine of the rapture. Uh, Each comes in the form of a parable. And the first application is this. Number one, number one, you must watch as if the rapture could happen at any moment. Because the rapture is near, you must watch as if the rapture could happen at any moment. We find this application in verses 45 to 51 with the parable of the faithful and wicked servants. We've already seen that for Jesus... The central application of the rapture revolves around readiness or watchfulness. As he explained the nearness of the day of the Lord and with it the collecting of his disciples to himself, he said back in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
He then repeated this exhortation in verse 44, saying, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, that's not a coming at the end with judgment that he's referring to. When that coming, He said that that coming will be accompanied with many signs that foretell of its arrival. No, it's a reference to the coming described in verses 40 to 41. When Jesus says that the people will be more or less going about their business when very abruptly one will be taken and one left. It's a reference to the rapture. Jesus has already established that the core application of this doctrine is to be ready. Here's the question, though. How does one prepare for an unexpected event? How does one watch for an event that could occur without any discernible warning? Jesus gives the answer with the parable of the faithful and wicked servants in verses 45 to 51. In this parable, Jesus draws a comparison between two servants, one faithful and one wicked. In both instances, the servant's master goes away for a period of time, and he entrusts his property to his servant while he's away. It would be expected, of course, that a servant would take good care of his master's property while he's away, since it doesn't belong to the servant. However, only the first servant faithfully discharges his task and justly distributes the master's goods to the other servants in the household while the master is away. Jesus calls this servant wise in verse 45 and blessed in verse 46 because when the master returns, he rewards that servant with much authority. The idea is that that even when his master was absent, even when there was no one to hold that servant immediately accountable for his actions, that servant still conducted himself according to his master's wishes. And by so doing, he proved himself worthy of responsibility. And so he's rewarded with increased authority. The second servant, however, sees his master's absence as an opportunity. And he soon turns into a mini-despot. Rather than faithfully discharging his authority according to the master's wishes, he instead pursues his own desires. And rather than taking care of his master's wealth, he abuses it. He not only spends the master's riches on himself, but he even beats his fellow servants. Again, the reason is disclosed in verse 48. The servant says, my master is delayed. In short, he thinks that no one's watching. He thinks he can live it up, do whatever he wants, and so long as he can straighten up, straighten everything up, by the time his master gets back, he's fine. This is your basic plot for a good number of 80s and 90s teen movies and sitcoms, right? The parents are out of town, so let's go ahead and have a huge end of school bash over the weekend. So long as everything gets cleaned up by Sunday, mom and dad will be none the wiser. It's the perfect crime. Except, of course, you know how those plots tend to work out. Either the party goes out of control or something expensive gets broken that makes cleanup impossible, or mom and dad come home early, right? And then they're scrambling to try to make everything right. The plan rarely, if ever, works out. Mom and dad always have a way of knowing. That's what happens to the second servant. He devises this scheme where he determines to have fun as long as possible while his master is away. But then the master comes back before he expects it. The result, as you can imagine, is that he's severely punished. It's rather clear who the actors are in this story, right? Jesus is the master. The disciple is the servant. And so it would appear that the other servants are fellow Christians, fellow disciples. The first servant loves these fellow disciples until his master's return. The second one, though, shows no love. Instead, he even abuses the other servants and runs off to party with people outside of the household, which are presumably unbelievers. He sees the master's delay as an opportunity for license. And so he goes and lives like an unbeliever, all while telling himself, I have time. I can straighten up before my master gets back. The point of the story centers around the foolishness of this line of thinking. A servant believes that he'll have time to set things in order before the master returns. The only problem is that he has no idea when the master is coming back. 
In other words, he's playing a very dangerous game by gambling that he will have time to repent before the master comes back. Each moment that passes wherein he delays his repentance is like a game of Russian roulette. He's just spinning the barrel over and over again, pointing the gun to his head and pulling the trigger. Yeah, the odds, in a sense, may be for him. There may only be a 1 in 6 chance that he's going to put the gun to his head with the bullet loaded in the chamber. But should he gamble wrong, the consequences are devastating. So it is with the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus has already explained that no one knows when the day of the Lord will begin. And therein, when the rapture will occur. So it's a foolish proposition to gamble on it being a long time coming. I mean, are the odds in favor of it happening tomorrow? It's hard to say, right? I mean, it's been almost 2,000 years already. That means there have been a lot of days come and gone without this passage's fulfillment. But it's probably fair to say that it's a lot like a game of Russian roulette. There may only be a 1 in 6 chance that the barrel will load in the chamber on each spin. However, given enough spins, it's inevitable that there's going to be at least one instance when the barrel will load. And it seems reasonable to conclude that that's how it is with the coming of the Son of Man too. With each day that passes, the odds only seem to increase that this is the day of His return. Given enough time, we know it will happen. So the proper application of this doctrine is to live as if tomorrow, tomorrow, will be the day that Jesus comes to rapture His church. Listen, bargaining against the rapture is a lot like racking up debt. When you rack up debt, you're counting on your future earnings, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of gamble. It can be a calculated gamble, but it's a gamble. You're spending money you don't have based on the prospect that in the future you will have it in order to pay off the debt. It's kind of a race against time. You're eating a deficit in hopes that given enough time, your earnings will outpace your spending and you'll end up with a net positive with with the added benefit of being able to enjoy future earnings in the present. But what happens when you rack up debt and then something unexpected happens? Say you rack up debt, your credit card bills are high, and now you're living paycheck to paycheck just enough to make ends meet, and then the car breaks down. Or suppose you fail to buy health insurance because you're trying to get by with the debt you've incurred, and then you go to the doctor and find out you have cancer. What do you do then? It's a little too late then, isn't it? You wagered against the future that your car would hold up, that your health would hold up, and you lost. There's no going back to undo the debt and prepare for the catastrophe. You took a gamble and you lost. You're left then to suffer the consequences of the foolish bet. So it is with the rapture. Just as there are unexpected crises crises in life, which you can't prepare for after the fact, so it is with the rapture. I got, I got a taste of one of these crises in the past couple of weeks. You know how you're always told to back up computer files in the unexpected event of a computer crash? Well, I've never had that happen to me, so I've never been very diligent to do that. Even still, when I got my last laptop, I determined to put all my files on a micro SD card thinking, hey, even if my computer crashes, I can always have the micro SD card pop out and I'm fine. I didn't back up the card because in my mind thought in my mind I thought why would I need to? Well, I, I didn't anticipate the card falling out of my computer just before my wife came in to vacuum my office. I didn't realize it had fallen out. She didn't see it. It got sucked into the vacuum and broken too. Almost three years worth of sermon manuscripts were lost. Just gone. Don't get me wrong, the sermons are online, I can still still access them in that sense, but the actual written manuscripts are now gone. Why? It's because I didn't take the time to properly back up my files. I thought it won't happen to me. And so when the unexpected happened, I wasn't ready. This is how it is with the rapture. The day of the Lord is imminent, meaning that there is nothing left to fulfill prophetically for that event to take place. It could happen at any time. And at that time, the rapture will occur, meaning it too could occur at any moment. And this means that you have to prepare for the rapture in the same way that you'd prepare for a pop quiz. You know how I said that at the beginning of the semester, one of the first things that you'll do when you get the syllabus is is check the dates of the major exams. 
And I said one of the reasons for this is not only because you don't want to be caught off guard, but also because you don't want to prepare too early. I'm not saying that's how it should be. I'm just saying that's the way it is. It's our nature to take the path of least resistance. We often want to do the least amount of work that we have to do to get by. So if that means we can get by only studying a couple days before the final, we'll do that. That's easier to do if you know the date of the exam. Well, the rapture doesn't work that way. It's less of a final exam and more of a pop quiz. You remember pop quizzes, right? Everyone, everyone hates pop quizzes because they're so hard. You have to be ready at any moment for a pop quiz. And that means you can't slack off. You have to be diligent in the reading, diligent in study, because the quiz can happen at any time. That's how it is with the rapture. It comes unexpectedly. It can come at any time. And so the disciples must always be ready. They must must watch for it to come at any moment. The very practical effect then of this doctrine is that it means that the disciples can't slack off. And we'll talk about what ready means here and what slacking off is here in just a few moments. I doubt it's probably what you think it is. But the point is, you can't approach the return of Jesus with a mindset that says, I'll just cram for the test when when finals week gets here. No, you must watch as if the rapture could occur at any moment and prepare accordingly. This requires living in a constant state of readiness. This is the first application that Jesus attaches to the idea of an imminent rapture. He tells the disciples to watch, to watch as if the, as if the rapture could happen at any moment. Let's look now at the second application. The second application to the idea of imminence is this. Number two. You must prepare as if the rapture will be a long time coming. You must prepare as if the rapture will be a long time coming. So application number one, you must watch as if the rapture could happen at any moment. The focus is on the immediacy of the event. Application number two, you must also prepare as if the rapture will be a long time coming. The focus is on a potential delay, the extended period of time between Jesus' resurrection and His return. We see this point drawn out in the parable of the ten virgins. That's found in chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Let's read that passage one more time. Jesus says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went off to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This parable is, I think, harder to understand than the first one. While the idea of a boss or business owner transferring authority to a subordinate while he or she is away is is still very common, and so makes the first parable easy to understand, this parable is different. It involves a custom that's very foreign to our experience, and so there are elements in this story that are hard to account for. We know they represent something. It's just hard to say what, because they don't have, we don't have marriage customs like this. However, if I, I think if you look at the application of the parable in verse 13, then it's not too hard to understand. There, verse 13, Jesus concludes the parable by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the basic thrust of the parable. It, too, is about watchfulness. It's about being ready in light of the unexpected arrival of the Lord. You take that principle in hand and you bring it back up into the parable, and what you discover is that this parable is, in a sense, a mirror image of the first parable. In the parable of the faithful and wicked servants, the master returned sooner than expected. Here, the master, or in this case the bridegroom, is delayed longer than expected. 
Jewish weddings would often last as long as seven days. During the first stage of the wedding, the groom would come with his groomsmen to the bride's house or some other place to meet the bride, and it was there that the two would officially be married. After this, a a procession would occur, usually back to the bridegroom's home, where the wedding feast would begin. These wedding processions usually started at night, and they were accompanied with the use of torches, which not only lit the way back to the bridegroom's house, but which also loudly advertised to the rest of the community that the wedding feast was about to begin. What we have here in this parable is the bridesmaids waiting for the expected coming of the bridegroom in the middle of the night to take his wife and bring her to his house for the wedding reception. And by the way, the Greek here does indicate that it's torches that they're carrying, not lamps. Uh, such torches were long poles with rags or other such cloth wrapped around them. They'd then, be, they'd then be doused with oil and set on fire. As you can expect, these torches not only gave off a fair amount of light, but they were also very short-lived. According to one commentator, it is sometimes said that torches would only burn for 15 minutes without extra oil. Here there are ten virgins. There doesn't appear to be any peculiar significance to the fact that there are ten, but there are ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, waiting for the coming of the groom. The only problem is that only five of the bridesmaids brought extra oil. The other five apparently only brought their oil-doused torches. Of course, it would seem like this latter group, which Jesus labels as foolish, expected the bridegroom to be a very short time coming because they didn't bring torches prepared for anything longer than perhaps a 15-minute wait. The first group, which Jesus labels wise, prepared for a long delay by bringing extra oil. So both groups light their lamps and they wait. Only the bridegroom is delayed. In fact, he takes so long that both groups even begin to fall asleep. And then, unexpectedly, both groups are suddenly awakened by a cry announcing that the bridegroom has arrived. In other words, it's not as if they see him coming a long way off. By the time they realize that he's coming, he's upon them. So they have no time to prepare at that point. They simply have to go with what they have with them. The five wise virgins quickly trim their lamps and get ready to accompany him and the bride back to his house for the wedding feast. The, ten foolish ver- uh, the five foolish virgins, on the other hand, don't have enough oil to join in the wedding procession. Nor do they have time to go and get some before the bridegroom arrives. They ask the five wise virgins for some of their oil, but there's not enough for both groups, so they're forced to go out and try to acquire some oil before it's too late. What they discover, however, is that it's already too late. By the time they catch up with the wedding party, everyone's already inside, and the groom refuses to let anyone else enter in. They're excluded from the wedding feast. Now, we could try to discover some symbolic meaning behind every aspect of the parable, but it's pretty unnecessary in light of that conclusion, isn't it? Jesus concludes this parable by saying, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The point is that, just like the last parable... The disciple needs to be ready. But here, the preparation is not for for an unexpectedly short absence of the master, but an unexpectedly long one. The virgin's lack of proper preparation, this time for a long delay rather than a short one, has caused them to be excluded from the wedding feast. I think that's really all you need to take away from this story. You don't need to necessarily apply some symbolic meaning to the torches or to the oil dealers. I don't even know that we're supposed to attach a spiritual lesson to the fact that the wise virgins are unable to share the oil with the foolish ones. These are all plot devices aimed at illustrating this very important point. The imminency of the rapture means that you have to prepare for a long delay just as much as you do a short one. Again, the disciples want to know, when will these things be? They want to know when the day of the Lord will take place. Jesus says, no one knows that day or hour. Not even me. That not only means that His return could be sooner than they expect. It also means it could be later. And you have to prepare for both contingencies. If you don't brace yourself for a long delay, then you may suddenly find yourself just as unprepared for His coming as the wicked servant was. And you'll be shut out of the wedding feast. 
to return to the pop quiz analogy, suppose your teacher tells you that a pop quiz could be offered on the most recent unit at any moment during the semester. And so for the first couple of weeks, they pass by and you study diligently trying to get ready for the quiz. But then two weeks pass by, three weeks, four weeks, and and there's no quiz. Eventually you decide it's not worth the effort, and so you stop studying. Week six rolls around, you walk into class and you hear those dreaded words, all right, students, clear your desk, it's time for a pop quiz. And what do you do then? You were diligent at the start, so you know the material from the first couple of units, but the quiz is on the most recent unit, and you didn't study for that. What's going to happen then? You're going to fail the quiz. All that preparation at the beginning meant nothing because you only prepared for a quiz in the near term, not in the long term. So it is with the rapture. The mysterious nature of the timing of the day of the Lord means that the rapture could be a long time coming as much as it may be immediate. It could happen tomorrow, or it could be another thousand years from now. We don't really know. And the long delay has the potential to surprise when it, when it finally does occur, just as much a very near return can. So you have to prepare for both contingencies. You have to start studying immediately in case the quiz is on week one of the semester, but at the same time you keep studying in case it happens in week ten. You have to prepare for both possibilities. In sum, I would describe the lessons of these two parables like this. Why do you buy life insurance? Well, because you might die tomorrow, right? But if that's the case, then why do you at the same time save up for retirement? Well, because you might not. It's the same way with the rapture. Jesus has already been absent for nearly 2,000 years, and it may very well be another 2,000 before he returns. At the same time, he may come tomorrow. So you have to be ready for both outcomes. But what does that mean? I want to talk about this now. What does that mean to be ready for Jesus' return? What does one do to get ready? This is where I think the passage gets kind of interesting. Because you see, what Jesus indicates in both passages is that salvation itself is at stake in the way that one prepares for his coming. You see that at the end of the parable of the faithful and wicked servants, when the wicked servant is cut into pieces and put with the hypocrites, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's clearly a reference to hell. The point isn't just that the servant misses the rapture, it's that he's consigned to hell. The same thing happens to the five foolish virgins. They're shut out of the wedding feast, and then when they ask the bridegroom to let them in, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he replies, truly I say to you, I do not know you. The idea is that there's no relationship there. And the phrasing actually harkens back to Matthew 7, where Jesus says that there will be many on the last day who cry out to him, Lord, Lord, only to hear him say back, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The idea is that salvation itself is tied up in the way that one prepares for Jesus' return. Now, what makes this very curious is that if Jesus is relating these events to the rapture, which I believe he does, then his outcome doesn't seem to fit the timeline that he's laid out for us. After all, if the rapture occurs before the final judgment, then won't there be an opportunity to repent before Jesus comes back in judgment? It would seem so. I've said before that the fact that there appears to be things like death and sin in the millennium even demands it. There have to be non-glorified saints who believe in Jesus at his return for that to happen. That belief has to come after the rapture. So then, how can Jesus say that those who are not ready for the rapture will be cast into hell? It would seem that some will not. Some will repent and find forgiveness before the end. That's one problem that occurs when we realize that Jesus is making one's eternal destiny contingent upon their readiness for the rapture. Another problem occurs once you realize that Jesus is making this eternal destiny contingent upon one's preparation for this event. Like he's saying that those who do not watch, those who are not ready, will not enter into heaven. 
it can almost come across like Jesus is saying, look, if you're sinning when I come back, then too bad, you're not coming with me. If, if you're like the foolish servant, servant and you're beating the slaves, drinking with the drunkards when I come back and I catch you, you're out. If you're like the foolish virgins and you don't have the torches burning at my arrival, it doesn't matter how much you plead with me, you're out. In short, if you're not ready to appear before me in that specific moment at my return, then you're out. In other words, it can almost seem as if Jesus is making our salvation contingent upon our actions, upon our obedience, and not upon our faith. It can come across like we can move into or out of salvation, depending on what kind of a day we're having or whether or not we're ready for Jesus to come back that day. And so the point of the passage is then to drive us to the point of insecurity and fear and in, in that, to, to, to lead us to obey Jesus because of the severe consequences that will happen at His return if He happens to find us in disobedience when He comes. But this can't be, right? That can't be what Jesus is saying. Jesus can't be saying that there won't be an opportunity to repent after the rapture because the Scripture indicates elsewhere that there will be. Nor can He be saying that our salvation is contingent upon whether or not we are in an active state of obedience at the point of His return, since the Scripture indicates that, A, salvation is by grace through faith and not by the works of the law, and, B, that salvation once received is never forfeited, that it is eternally secure by virtue of the fact that the same God who elects, calls, regenerates, and justifies us will also be faithful to both sanctify and eventually glorify us. So what might Jesus be saying with this passage? What does he mean by be ready? I would answer that question by pointing to other passages that deal with this issue. For example, 1 John 2.19 says that those who have the part of the faith, uh, John says, quote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all, uh, that, that they all are not of us. In other words, when a Christian fails to persevere in the faith, it's not a sign that they've lost their salvation. It's a sign that they were never truly saved to begin with. They didn't lose their faith. They never truly had it. Why? Well, it's because genuine faith manifests itself in perseverance. Everyone who is saved will persevere. And not because of their doing, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. In the same way, James 2.24 says that a person is justified, or perhaps better translated, they're vindicated by works and not by faith alone. He's not saying there that works save. He's saying that salvation produces works. It says he says in James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The one who believes obeys. What Jesus is doing in these passages is exposing the difference between a false faith and a real one based on how one responds to the doctrine of imminence. In the first instance, the man who sees the master's delay as an opportunity for sin, it doesn't matter what he may wish to claim about himself, he's not a true believer. This is even seen by the fact that according to verse 51, he's assigned a place with the hypocrites. His profession of faith is nothing but a show. It's a false faith. This hypocrisy is demonstrated by the fact that as soon as he thinks no one is watching, as soon as he thinks the master's back is turned, he goes right on doing the things that he knows the master does not take pleasure in. That's not a man who loves his master. It's one who merely fears him. Once the threat of punishment is removed, he goes right back to doing the things he wants to do. Any sorrow, therefore, that he experiences at the Master's return is not a sign of genuine contrition or repentance. It's simply remorse. It's sorrow over being caught. Sorrow over the consequences of his sin, not the wound he's caused. Any confession or plea for forgiveness that he would offer up would be a false one. He has not yet turned to his Master and truly asked for forgiveness in any meaningful sense of the word. Not really. Because if he had, then he would be the same whether the master was present or not. And the same can be said for the five foolish virgins. 
You look at their lack of preparation for the bridegroom's delay, and it would seem that these would be Christians who have not fully counted the cost of discipleship. In other words, they're not exactly rebellious at the level that the wicked servant is. They just didn't really take into account what genuine faith means. Again, they didn't understand the cost of following Jesus. They sign up expecting only a 15 or 20 minute watch. And then by the time the master shows up, their torch is extinguished. And it's too late for them to go and do what needs to be done to be ready for his coming. I would compare these to the soil on the rocky ground in the parable of the sower. You remember that that parable, right? The parable of the sower. Jesus says, A sower went out to sow in his field, and some seeds fell along the path, others on rocky ground, others on thorns, and still others on good soil. The seed that falls on the rocky soil springs up immediately. But then it's quickly scorched by the noonday sun because it has no depth of soil. He then goes on to explain that this represents those who hear the word of God and immediately receive it with joy. But then when tribulation or persecution arises, they quickly fall away because they have no depth of soil. That's what these five virgins are like. They're not rebelling against the bridegroom per se. They want to be in the wedding feast with him. But because they weren't ready for a long and an enduring watch, they're shut out when he comes. This is how some people respond to the gospel. There's an initial exuberance over the truth, but then when there's not the immediate payoff, they fall away over time. I think you could say that these types of people are really very much like the wicked servant, and that it is only the master's presence that drives their obedience. The only difference is that while the wicked servant was driven by fear, It would seem they are driven only by reward. If the payoff isn't there right away, they fall away. And that's not genuine faith. That's not genuine repentance. Listen, genuine obedience. Genuine obedience occurs whether the master is present or not. Let me say that one more time. Genuine obedience occurs whether the master is present or not. The one who obeys for fear of the master's punishment and immediately turns to his disobedience when his back is turned, doesn't love his master, not in his heart. And the same can be said for the one who only obeys for the love of his praise. You know, the suck-up, right? They're just as much a hypocrite as the other one. No, the one who truly loves his master, the one who has sincere faith, is the same whether his master is near or far. Because he doesn't do it simply for the praise, or to avoid the punishment. He does it because he loves his master. And so, on the whole, what this passage seems to be doing is using the imminent return of Jesus as a backdrop to distinguish between false and genuine faith. It's saying, this kind of faith will be ready at his coming, and survive it, and that kind of faith will not. And it's providing this distinction in order to encourage readers to prepare themselves for Jesus' return by pursuing a genuine expression of faith. In other words, I don't think we look at the parable of the faithful and wicked servants and say, the imminent return of Jesus means you better stay on your toes so he doesn't catch you red-handed when he returns, as if fear is a legitimate and acceptable basis for obedience. It's not. It's hypocrisy. Rather, this parable is a point for reflection wherein one examines why they obey their master. And if they discover that they are this type of servant, that the only reason they obey is because they fear their master's presence, then it's an opportunity to ready themselves for his return by confessing this self-righteousness and pursuing the grace that produces genuine love. Likewise, the point of the parable of the ten virgins isn't to merely dig in and steal yourself for a long wait. Rather, it's an opportunity to reflect once again on why you do the things you do. If Jesus is a long time coming, do you still have a desire to obey? Take away His praise. Take away His reward. Is there still a longing to be obedient? Not because of what you will receive, but because of what you've already received. And because of the great joy you have over your Master. If not, then now is the time to ready yourself by confessing your idolatry and by pursuing the object that produces genuine love. You must, produ- you must pursue that kind of sincere love now. 
Because when Jesus comes back, it will be too late. And that could happen at any moment. So the question to ask yourself this morning is, am I ready? Am I ready for Jesus' return? Once again, we've already said that the return of Christ is something you can take great hope in and look forward to with with eager anticipation. But this is only if you have made yourself ready for His return. So are you ready? Are you watching for the imminent appearance of your Savior? As you try to answer that question, I want to stress once again what this does not mean. Readiness does not mean sinlessness. Of course, this is not to say that we should not pursue holiness in light of our Lord's coming. It's only to say that Jesus is not saying, what He's not saying here is that you must be sinless at His return in order to be included in the rapture of His church. That's one way to misread this passage. As if Jesus is saying, stay on your toes, because if I catch you red-handed when I come back, you're going to hell. If that's the case, then no one's going to be saved, because we're all sinners. Right? Even after we come to know Christ, we're still sinners. Sinlessness is an impossible goal to achieve in this life. So don't think that Jesus is demanding that. He's not demanding that. What He is demanding, what He is demanding though, is a sincere, genuine faith. The kind of faith which manifests itself in a love for, his, for the Master, whether He is near or far. Have you exercised that kind of faith? Understand, I'm not asking you simply if you believe factually that Jesus is the Christ or whether you really do think that He is the one and only sacrifice for sin. Satan can affirm that. No, what I'm asking is, have you applied those truths to your life? Meaning, do you desperately cling to Jesus as your only hope for salvation? Because that's how you apply the truth that He is the one and only sacrifice for sin. And do you seek Him out? By progressively, not perfectly, but progressively growing in the knowledge of His Word and through faith conformity to His will. Because that's how you apply the truth that He is Lord. That's how you apply the truth that He is the one and only sacrifice for sin. You desperately cling to Him by actively pursuing a relationship with Him through faith. You learn about who He is. And as you learn who He is, you actively seek His grace to help you love who He is. And as you learn to love who He is, steadfast obedience becomes more and more a rule in your heart. You seek His will, not for fear of punishment or for the hope of some earthly reward. No, you seek His will, not simply because you have to, but because you get to. Your mind is gradually conformed to His so that you agree with Him. That's what faith looks like in action. This this increasing agreement with God as you continually respond to His gospel by turning to Him, confessing your sin, and repenting of your idolatry. And that kind of faith, that kind of faith, produces the kind of love that leads the disciple to obey, even if they believe their Master is a long time coming but which is also ready for Him to return at any moment. Have you turned to Christ with that kind of faith? Again, not a mere intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, but a life-transforming trust in those realities. This passage is written to remind you that Jesus can come back at any moment and to encourage you in light of that fact, do not wait to determine the answer to that question. A lot of time we can avoid difficult questions by pushing them off to the future. We say, you know, I'll get around to dealing with my soul when I have time. I can wait a little while longer and then I can set things in order then. That's a fool's bet. For you do not know when your master will return. Now is the time to consider. I know the gospel, but do I know Christ? Do I have a relationship with Him? When I knock on the doors to the wedding feast and, I, and, and say, Lord, Lord, open to me, will He say to me, truly I say to you, I do not know you? Or will He say, enter the joy of your Master? There's no more important question that you can answer in your life than this one. So if you have not answered it already, I would urge you, strongly urge you, do not wait. Settle it today.